0: to unfrozen this is dan Safarik,
1: and this is greg Lindsay, and our guests this week are wait who are our guests this week dan
0: why it would be daniel myers and tracy sim they are the principals of plus and greater than and they're going to tell us a little bit about what plus and greater than is to kick things off oh wow
2: thanks for that dan and greg uh I'm Daniel Myers. I'm one half of the principal team here at Plus and Greater Than. We're an exhibition design studio. Um, We are fairly young. We're about five years old. uh, And we were formed um, when Tracy and I met, uh, as we were just talking about, about 10 years ago, um, at a studio that was doing exhibition design in a digital context. Um, And uh, Plus and Greater Than has sort of come out of that, uh, that milieu
3: Uh, My name is Tracy Sim, um, the other co-founder of Plus and Greater Than, and uh, my background is actually in performance and theater, and I sort of found my way to exhibition design through that lens. Um, uh, And as Daniel said, we met in an interactive studio and really wanted to kind of zoom back out and develop a practice that was based in spatial context, but really heavily relies on content um and performance and
0: uh uh audiences thank you for that that and as a point of full disclosure yeah i uh i uh, met uh dan Myers as an architecture student in uh university of oregon we were just we were just counting up the years and uh it looks like it was uh 2004 uh so we've we're going on 15 16 years here
2: which is crazy to believe yeah yeah, so i uh, I am a registered architect, although I refer to myself frequently as a recovering architect. <laughs> so
0: I, I, I'm an attempted architect and a recovering journalist, so we have a lot going on.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think uh, you know like a big part of um, of this practice and just sort of my general move away from architecture was about uh, needing to find some sort of relationship with content, you know, that's just not there in architecture. I think, you know, we, we talked about this a lot, I guess 15 years ago, Dan, uh, because you had come from journalism at that time. But architecture has this sort of like strange hole in the middle of it, which um, for me turned out to be just sort of like a lack of relationship to stories. Um, and exhibition design has turned out to be a, a place where those architectural skills are sort of like spatial narrative skills uh, bump up against actual content. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think the the ability to be able to articulate your your story in a way that isn't just totally reliant on images or or text is I mean, it seems like an obvious thing, but it's actually kind of a niche kind of a niche undertaking. I mean, I think one of the reasons that we were inspired to, to talk to you guys today was that you know, we were going around the Venice Biennale um, last October and you know, we were just sort of saying to each other, "What what, what kind of person becomes an exhibition designer who has, you know, uh, traditionally come up through the architecture world, and then what what are the interdisciplinary, you know, opportunities there, and and how do you, how do you get that gig?" In other words, we thought it seemed like a really cool gig.
2: Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it's funny. It's like I feel like at a certain level. You know, like conventional architectural practice and exhibition design, um, you know, the definitions of both of those things have been shifting for a long time, but they've always been in a sort of a dance. Um, sometimes they're closer than others. I mean, you know, you think about like the contemporary exhibition design really like kicked off maybe with the Cambridge 7 in the 60s. Um, you know, and that, that was a, like a really intentionally transdisciplinary studio, you had graphic designers, people who uh, identified themselves as exhibition designers and architects getting together to do things like, you know, the uh, world's fairs, uh, a lot of uh, really noteworthy exhibitions for the Smithsonian. Um, But even then it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the case that an architect woke up one day and said, I guess I'm going to be an exhibition designer now. It was a a question of people with a a variety of skills coming to the table, recognizing that um, there were other things that needed to be known and done in order to make a successful exhibition, you know, things that you didn't learn either in school or in practice, just as an architect.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that to me, what's so exciting about exhibition design and why I I kind of like continuously fall in love with it over and over again um, is that it's a, it's this interdisciplinary practice in and of itself, right? It requires spatial design and thinking, it, it, it requires choreography of audiences, it requires media, um, technology maybe, uh, image, words, ideas, like it, it has to weave all of these things together. Um, and it always situates the visitor as, a, as an active member of whatever it is that they're experiencing. Um, it's really not a passive medium. And so coming from the from the theater and coming from performance, I've always really loved the idea of really creating these moments where we're shape-shifting spaces um, and time and stories around an individual to help them understand or see or be introduced to or challenge understandings of things we know in the world. Um, or that we have bumped into, or different perspectives. Like, there's all these different ways that we can do it. It's a, experiments in form, um, and not just spatial form, uh, form that is narrative, that is content wise, that is sound. You know, there's so many things to play with. So, um, I, I just never get tired of it.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's funny like, if the question is, how does an architect get the gig? I think, <laughs> like, part of the answer is, um, you have to quit doing architecture for a while and, and be willing to be a beginner at something that, that certainly was the case for me um so the studio that tracy and i met at was uh, called second story um and i went there to i think 2010 or so i had just sort of like just weathered the 2008 crisis uh, should have been feeling good about myself because i managed to stay employed employed throughout the you know the, the duration of that but I, you know as i said i felt like there was something like really missing in the middle of um, my practice and a, an opportunity came up to go to this, this studio that was working in exhibitions um, and I showed up there and like the first week uh, I had somebody tell me um, that architects don't understand time, time-based medium and that it needed to shut up for about a year <laughs>
0: just, so, but how could they be sure that you would be able
2: to measure a year if you don't understand
0: time that is,
2: that is an excellent question. I You know, it's only taken 12 years to come up with that great comeback. <laughs> uh, that's, I mean, I, I think it's interesting though because architecture
0: is often, you know, accused of being overly formalist and very like aloof from engaging with the real world and, and real people's understanding of reality uh, or concepts. And, you know, I think... I guess the question is, you know, when I, when I see what you guys are creating, you know, do you think that you have to approach things with, it's a cliche to say like a childlike sense of wonder, but wh- where, where do you meet the, the sort of average exhibition attendee and how do you de- determine who that person is so that you're not, you know, talking down or sideways at them, you know, in, in architecture speak or exhibition speak, if there is such a thing?
2: Yeah, I, well that I mean that's a that's a great question. I think like I mean for starters there's a whole host of tools that that exhibition designers can use, right, to think about audiences that are fundamentally different from the tools that architects use to think about people that occupy buildings. But I think like in a way you could you could come at the answer to that question from the perspective of outcomes. Um you know, architects have a tendency to to think about people in um somewhat mathematical abstractions, right? Like you, we can think about flow through a, a multimodal transit center in the context of like heat maps, right? And that, that is a way of thinking about time. And that is a way of thinking about people. Um, but it's fundamentally different from even the really sort of like dry way that exhibition designers think about outcomes, which will be things like um, content evaluations. There's a whole uh, class of museum professional called an evaluator. Um, and these are you know social scientists. That will do very in-depth um, research with audiences who have experienced an exhibition to understand uh, not only how they felt and what they experienced but quite literally whether or not they um, uh, achieved the educational objectives of, uh, or you know um, educational outcomes that were intended for an exhibit and that that's sort of like in-depth thinking about individuals and what they've learned is is just very different from how architecture thinks about people
3: i would also add that I, again, it's one of the things that I love about this practice is you cannot do it in a, by yourself, right? The, especially when you're trying to bring different kinds of communities together, um, people who have a lot of experience with the subject matter that you're focusing on, or people who have, who have, you know, never experienced it before. um, We need to make sure we're making partnerships with curators, historians, community members, um, you know, people across the swath of audiences that we're trying to bring in that are part of the project, um, some in light ways and some in really deep ways to make sure that the way in which we're going about trying to tell this story is something that that can feel more archetypal, that can feel more inviting and welcoming and challenging to an audience, right? We never want to make something that um, is, you walk in, you kind of, see a subject you don't really need to do any work and you can walk through this thing, Um, uh, you know, time. Time has its uh, downsides as well because people are so used to kind of absorbing everything really quickly and flicking past things on their phone. Um, And so to really get people to sort of sit in the moment with content and fall into it in a way um is part of what we're really focused on in our practice it's like really drawing people into the world of what it is that we're trying to explore together
1: well yeah i mean i i would i, I love what you said at the very beginning guys about the fact that you know the hole at the center of architecture and it was storytelling because because you know i'm a recovering journalist as well uh and an architecture groupie perhaps is maybe my relation to the field but um you know, it was a decade ago that I was very fortunate to be invited to a supergroup of architects and artists that Jeannie Gang put together. It was her and Kate Orff and Theaster Gates. I think I'm the only member of that team who doesn't have a MacArthur Genius Grant at this point. Um, <laughs> and it was from MoMA's exhibition "Foreclosed: Rehousing the American Dream." Yeah, um, it was a really, it was a really interesting display. And you know, and I talking through the process. But what was what I marveled at for me is someone who had always been as a journalist. On the other side of the table from the architect at the end, where the architect tries to explain what they've done, with whether it was REM with the you know, Prada Superstore in Manhattan or whatever else, um, but it was the first time I'd ever hung out with architects, and it was fascinating to me because I thought of everything as stories. and like What is our narrative arc? Who are our characters? How do we hang ideas off of that arc? They were sitting around like turtles on their backs at the beginning of this process, and I just remember Rafi Siegel, who's a friend I still work with, Rafi's like, we need a site. And we need a program. And like, yeah. once we have that, we can we can make this work. I I realized that was their toolkit. And so, how do you how do you resolve those two? I mean, is it you guys have to do, does does an exhibition designer have to learn both practices? Is it a function of collaboration, as Tracy pointed out, or like? And 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 then I guess as a functional way of explaining it, could you talk through an engagement? Like, how does how does the process go versus traditional architecture, or even the act of writing? Like, how do you pull in those collaborators and and iterate and get to a final form?
2: I mean, I think I think the first answer to that is that the clients are fundamentally different,
1: right? So um,
2: before we've even considered what a team might look like on an engagement, um, we have been uh, confronted with a client's challenge, a client's question, and because the you know the clients are are generally speaking public institutions, although that's not always true, um, they are coming with a curatorial perspective. Um, And so, you know, inherent in that then is a whole other set of questions, right? If we're um, trying to help, for example, uh, a land trust that preserves um, uh, battlefields in uh, the contiguous lower 48, uh, tell the story of a particular uh, Revolutionary War battle, which is a project that we're involved in in South Carolina right now, Um, you know, for sure, the site is there, and to a certain extent, we have a sense of program uh, in as much as we know that we're um, going to have audience members um, confronting a particular story in a, in a um, particular physical context. But really, the, the, the starting place is the story, right? In, the, in that case, it's a particular historical event um, and a, uh, a client's desire to present that story in a different way, a way that hasn't been done before. Um, And so already, right, immediately what comes to mind, before we have any answers to the questions uh, about program and and more specific answers to the questions about site, um, we have to answer questions about uh, the history, right? Like we're gonna need to engage some historians. Um, Once we've selected a sort of um, a methodology for transmitting that story to audiences, which in this case is is a, a dimensional audio piece, uh, we then have a whole host of other sort of experts that need, we need to bring to the table. We're going to need a composer. We're going to need a, a playwright in that instance, which incidentally, um, Greg, I, I heard on a previous issue of the, of the podcast, uh, you mentioned that you were enjoying following um, Dick Nixon on Twitter. And it happens to be that the uh, playwright that we've worked with on this project, Justin Sheeran, is also Dick Nixon on Twitter.
1: <laughs> love it. Love it. Holy cow. It. I love that that was a major review. There you go.
0: <laughs> i mean we don't know we don't know the hustle architect and we kind of don't want to know but that's amazing oh that's so
2: funny well J- justin uh he's he's open about the fact that that's his twitter feed but he also is an absolutely brilliant playwright it's been an amazing project to work on
3: yeah i mean i think i think the the main difference so i admit i am a i am not an architect i did not study architecture uh, again my world was really in performance and um I, I did an a 18-month or 15-month um, stint in an architecture studio to just kind of better understand how spatial design comes, uh, what the process for that looks like from an architectural standpoint. Um, so I have very little to go on in terms of what most people experience. Um, but what I do know about the work that we do um, and the work of exhibition design is that it's really swoopy, right? Like we really sit in um, the mud and the mix of of ideas and emotion and audience um, really heavily in the beginning and trying to understand what it is about this story um, that needs to be told and why and for whom, and how do we sort of tease apart those like really tight woven moments of a a narrative that maybe is really familiar to people or is really new, um, but find those threads that are actually the meat of the story that that need to be kind of like teased out and and raised up and surrounded in different ways by context than we've done before. So we really, really spend a lot of time in our early um, parts of our project. And, and as Daniel said, sometimes we have a curator who knows exactly what the, um, the story is going to be. And we need to work together to figure out you know, how to sort of shape it and how, how, uh, how it comes to life um, narratively and physically as you're moving through the space. Um, but in some cases we get a call from, we're working on a project with the National Building Museum um and you know they have a rough idea of an exhibition they want to do but they're in the really early stages and so in those cases we are we love to meet with large groups of people so we met with i think like 20 20 different um uh, staff members inside the institution this was probably 3 years ago now um to really just have big brainstorming sessions that dig into various topics that we've been discussing, how they kind of overlay on one another, um, where are the guts of the story that we want to get into, what makes us excited. Um, This has to do with uh, 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 story, illustrated storybooks. And so there's a lot of fodder there that we can fall into and get really excited about um, and then come back to our clients with new ways to sort of see in or a way to see into these stories, um, that can be expressed and experienced, um, through, uh, you know, a linear or a non-linear way.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's funny, the, the whole process thing is really interesting because I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of design education, and it's not just architecture that's guilty of this really like is invested in the notion that discovering and honing a process that is yours um, is the way to make great work. And like, I'm sympathetic to that. I I, I have had, as Dan can attest, uh, quite a number of careers, one of which was I was a guitar maker for a number of years. Um, and so I like got really invested in this, you know, the idea of craft, the idea of repetition and, and you know, believe that that does create quality results in the world. But I think you also miss a lot of opportunities when you when you you know you're a hammer you you craft yourself into a hammer and then everything looks like a nail and I think architects in terms of process have a tendency to do that um, and one of the things that I think we're we're trying to do differently is to allow um, processes to reveal themselves to to, to like sort of discover emergent ways of finding the right answers to questions um, as they as they come up. But obviously, to do that, you you have to bring in people who know how to do things differently than you do, right? Like you're not going to invent things from whole cloth.
0: Well, that's that. Thank you for that. That's a very comprehensive uh, description of the process. And I know it's not going to be. It sounds like it's never going to be the same, right? For any individual engagement, because your starting point is always so different, which is obviously probably one of the things that makes it a really interesting career.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, and I think, you know, there are folks that, that focus on particular aspects of exhibition design. You know, there are people that just do aquariums, for example. And that's amazing, you know. Um, I think that for us, just sort of temperamentally, we're more interested in um, yeah. variety. I mean,
0: I mean, you know, the one thing that you do have in common with the architects in, norm, in normal circumstances, you know, such that there are any normal circumstances anymore, um, is that you're dealing with 3D space and how to walk people through it. Um, what has yeah. been the sort of impact of COVID not only on you know business from a business perspective, but on the the functional way that you've dealt with designing exhibitions for uh, you know anticipating a future of social distancing or more electronic engagement, or or, or, or have you not had to pivot to that?
2: Oh man, we. We absolutely have. I mean, my one word answer is denial. (laughs) But um,
3: I don't know. I mean, I would say I don't know that I might be um, in the minority globally on this, but I believe that moving everything into um, a digital practice is kind of bullshit. Um, Wait, can uh, we swear? Absolutely. (laughs) And,
0: you know, I... I second your your call of bullshit there.
3: Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I, I think that it was really interesting to see sort of the start of, you know, we we worked for a long time in interactive media. So we are very comfortable in technology and new media um, and creative development and all of that sort of stuff. And we work those things into our practice in intentional ways when they are the right tool for the job. Um, they're, you know, they are another material on the palette, and they're used in the same way that any other material is when they're the right thing to be to be used. Um, mm-hmm. When the pandemic first started, and uh, some of our our peers were calling for, you know, more uh, touchless interfaces and um, interactive solutions to um, being in places, or or really still being in places, but dealing with the fact that nobody wanted to touch any surface. Um, I think that it's, it's, it's a fool's errand to believe that that place doesn't matter, that space doesn't matter, that being in, um, community with other people and experiencing the world doesn't matter. Um, and I, I might, you know, uh, die on my sword for that, um, over the next 50 years, but I, I just believe that, um, and, and, Want to create experiences where people bump into strangeness, where people bump into things that they don't, um, uh, that is not algorithmically selected for them. When they um, touch things around them, when they experience the world through someone else's eyes or as a group, um, I think those things are really important. Um, and, and I think in the long term, you know, the last three years, two and a half years, whatever, of of this pandemic i think our clients have not really shifted away from what it is they're trying to create in their institutions
2: well yeah and i mean that's our clients that's very true i think part of the reason for that is that they're already major institutions right now are undergoing a a, you know a massive re-examination of their mission their identity uh you know, we have major institutions, collecting institutions in Europe actually starting to repatriate stolen stolen artifacts, right? So, like, in a context where museums don't really really know what they are, what they're for collectively at the moment. Um, to, to then also be faced with the question that, you know, not only are we maybe not going to have a collection anymore, but maybe people aren't going to, like, come to physical places the way that they did before the pandemic uh, has caused... A level of turmoil, um, you know. That's that's pretty intense.
3: I do think process-wise, things have shifted, but they should always shift, and they should continue to shift. Um, figuring out how best to, you know, share things with our client, work collaboratively when we had to close down everything. Figuring out we are we are a really hands-on studio, um, and our team, you know, we are used to being surrounded with one another and figuring out things together. The, the are they're really like the, the core of our practice is to work collaboratively with as many people as we can. And um, that really means that everyone is around the table uh, with their hands in the project. And some, you know, through that collaboration is where we figure out how this, this project is going to, um, how it's gonna come to life. Uh, so figuring out how to move that onto like Google slides. <laughs> definitely um a a big challenge but also you know shakes you out of the your tendencies to want to continue to to use a process that maybe isn't best serving your project um so so just sort of you know making you uncomfortable is um it's, it's honestly something that I think is super important for us as practitioners, but also something really important to think about for our audiences.
2: But, but not uncomfortable in the sense that we want people to be exposed to infectious disease, right? Oh no, God, no.
3: no. <laughs> but I mean, like, uh, you know, we all, we all can get really habituated to working in particular ways. And um, that can, over time, sort of limit the way that you can see connections and see uh, opportunities um, in your work. Um, and so being shaken up to sort of challenge yourself to, to work in a different way, to see in a different way, to collaborate in a different way, I, I mean, those things are-, are, are You know,
0: uh, that's a really good insight too. I mean, I, one of the things that we were thinking of, or one of the things that, that, that I'm thinking of that, that would draw off of another previous conversation that we had, which was less to do with exhibition design and more to do with how to maintain street life in the face of the increasing outsourcing of- commercial retail to delivery services. And the, but the thing that came up was the reuse of uh, you know department stores and big commercial spaces on the street um, f- as experience centers like the Dr. Seuss experience and the the office and the friends experience like re- rejuvenate the you know brand from the 90s or whatever nostalgia you know vein you're trying to tap. Um, And I'm wondering what you you guys think of those types of things, like go see Van Gogh as it was really intended, which is what projected on the inside of a four wall box?
3: Yeah.
2: Oh, I mean, we have to (laughs) tread lightly on this territory, but I mean, so first of all, I will say about the Van Gogh thing, uh, you know, all of... uh, all of our designer and artist friends are up in arms about that and how vacuous it seems. On the other hand, uh, just, you know, in our fair city of Portland alone, uh, the numbers, it's looking like almost 10% of the population of the metro area went to see, you know, I don't know if you're aware that there are two competing companies that are simultaneously touring Vancouver I was not. right now. And I don't know. Which, yeah. I don't know which of the two is here. Uh, we didn't go for, public health reasons, but, um, you know, when, when you can get 10% of a city to come out for a quote-unquote cultural event, something is happening that, that artists and designers who care about um, public life should be looking at, right? Um, I guess my argument would be we should be thinking about what the sort of, like, mechanism is that is creating that interest uh, and then see if we can't repurpose it. <laughs> with with some higher quality content. Um, Yeah. I mean, with regard to the, like, the just proliferation in the experience economy, the quote unquote experience economy in the last, you know, even really in the last three years, I don't know, we're up in arms about it. Our museum clients are up in arms about it um, because, you know, it just seems like there are more important things to do with our time than, break our tailbone jumping into a fake pool of, uh, you know, uh, ice cream sprinkles. I don't, <laughs>
0: I don't know. That sounds kind of fun. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I, th- I think that it, it almost seems to me like an extension of the, the big debate that was happening, say, mm, I guess it was probably almost two decades ago when you had like the motorcycle exhibition at the Guggenheim, or you had these very, very commercially oriented um, exhibitions that were absolutely record breakers at museums. I mean, they were they were they were giving museums attendance numbers that were well over that of amusement parks. And so there was this sort of argument of like, yeah. well, you know, it, shouldn't it be the purpose of a museum to to question what is art in the first place and to put in front of people if you know maybe Harv- maybe Harley Davidsons are art? And it sort of seems like a little bit of a, an extension of that, except now it's about not about the questioning the art, at least in the case of something like Van Gogh, which is established, but treating that art in a overtly commercial, two dimensional is not the right word to use, but a sort of uh, a sort of ham fisted way, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like like everything in our culture, it's become fractalized and so fragmented. It's it's hard to look at a sort of it's hard to look at this problem. I think through a through a a uh, simple lens um but i do think you know this whole like question about what is themed entertainment and what is uh, high museology is a pretty old one um and you can think about like you know the, the sort of like og experiences the the um the themed bars and restaurants in paris in the late 19th century clifton's cafeteria in la um, uh, you know, like those things have been around for a while and I guess I'm sort of always on team insurgent because I, I think that the, um, you know, I, I think it's it's not like it's a secret, uh, it's not like it's new information that um, the the preservation of the sort of like high museum is an artifact of white supremacy, right? Like we need to be breaking that down. Um, but when you you know, sort of like add the the z axis of the sort of like commercial interest around the experience economy. I, all of a sudden, I'm not sure whose team I'm on anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I yeah. The, the Doctor Seuss
0: experience is not exactly like becoming acclimated with the the Black
2: Panthers. Right, right. So
3: I do think that there is something, and maybe this is why Daniel and I work well together. Is I, I'm try I always try to to look optimistically at some of these things. And I think to me, there is something uh, hopeful about people wanting to gather to experience some that makes them feel something. Um, you know, that that feeling could have very little depth as some of these experiences have. Um, but if the instinct to, to convene with large groups of people or even small groups of people, um, to to look at projected light on a wall, to get excited about that and feel like you're participating in a world that you felt unwelcome in before. There's something that we should probably pay attention to in some of those um, uh, experiences and see how we can, you know, we're really interested in in how we can take the feelings and the Um, uh, emotions of performative spaces like this of theater of um, multimedia of film and weave them back into exhibitions weave them back into places where there are deeper uh, well researched well written content um, that can be presented in these ways that feel really rich and immersive and add something of value to the conversation to society to, you know, our, our future as a community uh, with one another. And I think like, when I get really discouraged by um, how excited people get about things, I, I I wonder what it is that we can do to, to add something to it rather than just pan it.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to just sort of kick back and, and uh, you know, not participate in something that seems like a sort of, tidal wave. Um, I mean, that would be sort of like saying, like, I don't know about this internet thing. Although, for
2: the record, I don't know about this internet thing.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm not so sure about it either. I don't think it's going to catch on. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, the podcasting, uh, uh. but um, yeah, I, th- I think to be able to, con- to, to, to have the awareness of not only, uh, you know, what's coming from for lack of a better word, high culture, but what is also coming from not so much the streets, but like, you know, sort of corporate mainstream culture and where can you find that meeting point, um, you know, really has to be a part of, I would assume any curator's job as well as the exhibition designers
2: who who are working with them. Yeah, I mean, depending on how said curator defines that mission, right? There are definitely still people working today who really don't care about engagement with the public as we're defining it right now and are more interested in the you know the sort of preservation of a particular academic discipline or they're you know <clears throat> really super into some obscure sculptor and they're just really just like focused on making shows about that right like there's still people who really aren't thinking broadly about their their public obligation but they you know there aren't many of them uh and we're, we're not uh, the first people that those folks call anyway. <laughs> All right. So my question for both of you
0: would be, have you ever had a situation where you are designing an exhibition and you run into a conflict with someone who is from your original discipline? So in Daniel's case, it would be architecture or perhaps a luthier, uh, and Tracy's, you know, theater performance where they're like, I know how to do this. You guys are off your rockers, you know, and you're telling them what's what.
2: Oh boy. And you don't have to name names,
0: you know.
3: (laughs) I don't know that I've experienced that because a lot of our crossover, I mean, we, we do work with uh, theater folks, actors. We're not temperamental at all
0: and neither architects.
3: No, but well, I think, but I think that, like, from the context of, I actually okay. So maybe I'm not answering your question fully. But there's there's something like really interesting to me about um, bumping into people who are who come from the world of theater and, and performance, and um, have only practiced within that world, and giving them um, a different sort of playground to run amok in, mm-hmm. like there's something really interesting to me about seeing what happens when you take some of the principles that we've you know, been defining and, and working through in our studio practice that's focused on exhibitions, that's focused on a different, a totally different um, context, but really uses all of the tools of performance, the tools of directing, the tools of lighting design, the tools of sound design and uh, choreography. Um, and, Finding ways for them to see opportunities in this different medium, um, for them to explore the things that get them really excited about stepping onto a stage like that—that that part of it. Again, I don't know that I'm answering your question from like a what's been hard, but like that's the thing that I I love about uh, trying to collaborate with people across disciplines.
2: I mean. It- the thing that I've observed, so first of all, yeah, I mean, absolutely have that challenge with architects all the time. But the thing that I've learned watching uh, Tracy and other folks whose training is in the performance for the performing arts uh, is that they're they're sort of like, they are... Educated, trained, and have experience in in the notion that um, encountering conflict is fundamental part of the creative process, right? So they like, you know, I mean the the dumb sort of like the dumbed down corporatized version of this is uh, you know improv people doing corporate trainings where you know C suite. Folks are all learning about how to say yes and. (laughs) Right, Right? they tossed you like a Nerf ball and you're like, oh, damn, I just dropped that Nerf
0: ball. Now I really look like a shithead.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, like that stuff's dumb because of the way that it became productized. But the the kernel of wisdom that's in there, which is that in order to create something great together, we have to find a way to, to deal constructively with our inevitable disagreements. Um, you know that's built into the training, and so it's just like muscle memory for performing artists to uh, to to proactively and constructively deal with conflict. Whereas, and it's not just architects. You know, like I can blame architects because that's that's my you know professional experience, but I, I've seen this in other design disciplines as well. I think a, a lot of designers are really just still invested in this lone genius, you know, Howard Rourkeian thing where they're Vision of success is when they've beaten their rivals into submission, and their idea is the one that wins. It's this sort of like you know creative Darwinism, um, and that just you know makes for crappy interactions and and worse work too. You know, so yeah, I mean you know this is a really long way of answering the question. Just you know to say yes for sure. We're like constantly having these kinds of um, challenges. What's I think the most frustrating, though, is that usually these perspectives that folks are bringing, um, you know, architects in particular, uh, in projects where their expertise is needed, um, that that perspective is super valuable, uh, but it needs to be put in the context of other people's perspectives, right? It's all about... There's a uh, a really great restaurant in Vancouver, Canada called uh, Ask for Luigi. You should go there sometime. Um, but they have a little sign posted uh, by the door that says, "The customer's not always right. Luigi is not always right. Through our differences, we find harmony." Right? We just we, we try and apply that perspective to our work, just on a daily basis. That's great.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, if you wanted to have a a a, a company name that was a little bit easier to to deal with and parse and search engines. It could just be Ask Luigi, you know, see if you can license it from him. For the record, I really love, I really love your, your name. It makes me, it makes me think, and it, it makes me think spatially and visually and in terms of text and stories. And it's very sort of, it's appealingly disassociative.
3: Oh, please, well, yeah. Man. And it's, you know, it's really meant to, 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 to speak to the fact that we are more and better than the sum of our parts. That that when we can see one another as valuable contributors to work, um, we can make really incredible things happen. When it's just one person, um, you know, one person cannot really bring <laughs> anything into the world. Uh, I mean, we can bring things into the world, but when we're talking about the scale of of, of work that, that we do. It doesn't matter who had the idea that gets everybody excited about it, right? When you're sitting around a table, if one person had that idea and then all of these different people from different disciplines, um, start to get excited about what that can become and add their voice to it. It can become shaped in these ways that we would never be able to achieve by ourselves. Um, and I think I would say, uh, you know, I kind of wonder if, um, the, the challenge with some of our disciplines where you kind of go to school, stay in one, in one um, place and just practice that for your, the whole of your, your career um, is actually what makes it, it kind of challenging to collaborate with others. Because I think for, it sounds like for you, Dan, and I know for Daniel and I, we both have done like 10 different things in our yeah. life. And it is through that layering and through that sitting in these different worlds and having these um, really different perspectives and experiences that when you start to add all those things up and layer them together, you start to realize, um, you know, what what role you play and what you're really good at, and who else at the table you're going to need to bring into that project to be able to help kind of expand your your viewpoint um, and expand your ability to like really delve into the feelings of this thing the emotions of it the story of it um the space of it like all these things come to life when we have a bunch of different people at the table who can you know kind of pump their energy and their livelihood into it
2: yeah you know the, the more the more sort of damascus steel your uh, your experiences the the more you have to contribute
3: you know yeah
0: that's wonderful yeah i mean it also just like the idea that it, it's not an egoless less enterprise and it certainly requires you to be centered and, and someone needs to take charge and guide the project through, but it, it kind of sounds sort of sounds like a collect, a collective midwifery, right? Like bir- birthing yeah. the product or bringing, bringing, bringing the thing that wants to be into the world.
3: Yeah. And it's, and it's fucking hard, man. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I wouldn't want to be <laughs> a new one.
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, I think that's the, the thing I I would say like in the, in the theater, we, uh, there's always this thing where, you know, you're, you're rehearsing a show and there's a point in the show where you're like, this is going to be the best thing we've ever done. And then two weeks before you open, you're like, I'm not telling anybody mm-hmm. about yep. this. It's terrible because like you're in that part where it just all feels so hard and so messy and so impossible. Um, but you pull it off like by the end, like if, if everyone is engaged and really trying to bring this vision to life, then, you know, the, the messiness pays off and you're able to look back at this thing and see other people experiencing it. Um, that's, you know, that's the magic of it every time.
0: That's great. Well, listen, I'm up at the uh, end of my uh, appointed time here and uh, I got to run to the next thing. But I, I really appreciate you guys taking the time out of your day to, to talk to me.
2: Oh, yeah, of course. And thank you so much for uh, for inviting us on the podcast. Yeah, it's really, super fun. really great Thanks.
0: to connect. And- Before we go, um, it, what should we be keeping our eyes out for next from, from you guys, from uh, Plus and Greater Than?
3: Well, we're about to install this project that Daniel was talking about that is a... Um, uh, audio piece in, um, rural South Carolina.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got a score, um, by Chris Funk, uh, of the Decemberists oh, wow. and, uh, Mrs. new trad tech band, which is
3: pretty cool. And Justin Sheeran is our playwright for that piece. So it's a spatialized audio piece about a particular battle of the revolutionary war. Um,
2: it's a, it's a new way of thinking about memorials and how we memorialize, uh, Important but distant historical events in uh, the United States. That sounds <clears throat> amazing.
0: I, I Please keep us posted and we, we will uh, we will broadcast uh, any and all updates.
2: Awesome.
0: awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Have a great day, you guys. You,
3: you too. too. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Right. I know you probably scream and cry that your little world won't let you go. But who? little world, are you trying to prove that you're made out of gold and uh, can't be sold? So, uh, are you experienced? Have you ever been experienced? Well, I have. Uh, Let me prove it to you.